0: Hi, we are in a new episode of the History and Politics podcast, and we have a great guest. We have Benjamin Knobs Thiessen, who is a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of History at the Washington State University to talk about the, the history of the Mennonites in Bolivia. So, um, hi Benjamin, how you, you became interested by this, by this topic? Sure,
1: thanks Camilo. Yeah, I was interested in studying Latin American history um, and you know, pursuing a PhD in that subject, and uh, was kind of searching around for for different topics. And it's interesting because Mennonites have such a, a broad spread as a group that's migrated historically, um, really around the globe, looking for opportunities to form these sort of more endogamous, isolated communities. Um, they've established themselves, you know, first throughout Europe and then into North America in the 1870s in Canada. And then finally into into Latin America in the 20s um, with big migrations of, well, a few thousand people, four or 5,000 people to Northern Mexico and to Paraguay. Um, It's also produced waves of return migration. And so some Paraguayan Mennonites um, that had really kind of settled and lived there after World War II um, started to come back to Canada in the 1950s and 60s. They had family that had remained in Canada that hadn't migrated out. Um, And so in my own province of British Columbia, I was quite familiar with Paraguayan Mennonites. I grew up working in construction um, with my father's business. And a lot of the people that did the, um, the doors and windows um, were Paraguayan Mennonites who would sit around drinking yerba mate, um, you know, the classic South American uh, caffeinated beverage at lunchtime. Um, and I just thought that was something that was kind of fascinating, that there was this, you yeah. know, direct connection to populations that were around me. And so became initially interested in studying the history of those Mennonites in the Gran Chaco, um, I this sort of frontier region of Western Paraguay and, and then kind of realized the sort of extent of the Mennonite communities in other parts of, of Latin America, particularly in Bolivia, um, a region that really hadn't been studied a lot, um, but, but is now home to, after Mexico, the largest population of um, Latin American Mennonites.
0: We have been talking about Mennonites, and, and although in Latin America there are many times mentioned, very few times there are explained what Mennonites particularly are. So can you try to explain what are Mennonites?
1: Yeah, sure. I, you know, I think there's a few different aspects to focus on. So that the broader religious element is that Mennonites are a group of Anabaptists um, that emerged out of the Protestant Reformation um, and in the 16th century, um, kind of broke off from, from the Catholic Church, believed in particular in adult um, adult baptism as opposed to infant baptism. Um, they developed a pacifist ideology as well, um, which led them to often refuse a lot of the central elements of, of emerging nations. They, they didn't want to serve in the military, of course. Um, they didn't want to necessarily vote in elections um, or swear oaths before the court. And over time, um, the language that they spoke, a distinctive sort of variant of uh, Low German, um, kind of a mixture of Dutch and German, um, they wanted to preserve that as well. So as they migrated eastward, really, um, in Europe, looking for areas where they could practice freely, they moved from Holland, where their origins are, into Prussia. Um, Eventually, they were welcomed into New Russia, sort of the area um, of the expanding Russian Empire by Catherine the Great in the 1780s. Um, They settled there and formed very prosperous colonies. And then as Russia started to kind of enact nationalizing policies in the 1870s and onwards, Mennonites began to look for new opportunities. And so a a significant group migrated to Canada, to the prairies um, of areas around Manitoba and Saskatchewan. And they again formed large colonies there Um, by the 1920s the low German language that they spoke in their schools, which was part of the agreement they established with the Canadian um, government, was sort of seen in a different light by, by nationalists who thought that they should be forced to, to speak English, and so Mennonites that kind of rejected that participation in public schools, that, that led them to, to Latin America, where what they've done, um, and they did in Russia, and they did in Canada, was, a, was established what they call a privilegium a list of privileges and rights. And again, it refers to those tenets I spoke about, the the freedom for military service, the right to conduct um, education um, in low German, private education within their colonies. Um, And and those migrations also kind of produce the distinctive village life that you might see if you travel and visit um, Latin American Mennonite colonies, right? You have these these villages that are quite close together with um, community structures um, such as widows and orphans funds and, and means of social assistance. And really, kind of a tight and dogmatic community that um, that does not um, marry outside of the community or outside of the faith. Um, so that's that's sort of the general overview, of, if that makes sense. And then what you have kind of emerging over time too is a, a big spectrum of different Mennonite practices within that. Um, some modernized, if you want to use that term, and accepted certain aspects um, of surrounding society, and others look to maintain traditional ways. Um, so a big debate among Latin American Mennonites was as rubber tires became more common, automobiles became more common, uh, Mennonites who had embraced the use of tractors didn't really want to have that mass means of transportation represented by the automobile and the rubber tire. And so the old colony Mennonites, as they're known in Latin America, um, enforced the use of steel wheels on their tractors so that the tractor can't be driven like a car. Um, they also rejected things like the telephone Electrical connections to the electrical grid, um, although they sometimes use generators and colony workshops. So that's become a big split within this sort of seemingly homogenous community is over the use of technology, um, really kind of leading to some fascinating variations as you go from place to place within Latin
0: American communities. What I have uh hear or listen or watch about the Mennonites is that some communities are trying to become more modern, are going outside the the more traditional rural communities in the outskirts of Santa Cruz to to try to live a more normal life. I mean, they still go to the church, but, but they now they speak Spanish and, 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 and the girls continue their education. So there are some kind of, of, of shifts, I guess. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, certainly. That's, you know, that's a great example. If you, you mentioned Santa Cruz, right, Santa Cruz de la Sierra, that's a very rapidly growing city in eastern Bolivia, which has become kind of a base for, you know, about 70 Mennonite colonies in the surrounding area. There's a huge web of them um, growing at a significant rate. And yeah, within that you see, you know, for example, I conducted a lot of my fieldwork in Rio Palacios, uh, a colony of Mexican Mennonites that was founded in 1967, 68, um kind of known still as sort of the bastion of a more traditional form of mennonite life in bolivia like i said the steel wheels you'll see on tractors sort of protecting telephones and other things like that um a group broke away from a neighboring traditional colony to form campo chihuahua um, up to the east of the rio grande in the 1980s and that's really kind of emerged as one of the most um, modern um, and in the colonies, if you will, in the region, um, people use really the most advanced machinery. They farm much larger farms with that equipment. Um, you know, the, the town is integrated with, with internet, with, with electrical systems, and with, every, with all those, those different aspects of, of modern life. Um, and as a result of their decision to kind of do that, the, the founders of the colony were also expelled from Riva Palacio. So these, are, these often cause quite serious divisions within, within families where people decide to make it. A decision to embrace aspects of technology, and as a result, are are exactly shunned and then expelled from these Mennonite churches.
0: So, doing this research, what are the language that you you needed to, to do this this research?
1: Yeah, I think that you know, a, one one excellent way would be to to sort of master Low German, the dialect that Mennonites speak. That wasn't my training as a as a Latin American. I did my training mm-hmm. in Spanish. And and so we we engaged in discussions in Spanish, which, you know, of course was a second language for my interviewees, um, as it was for me, but kind of served as a good common denominator. And what I was interested in doing in in my own work was to kind of compare the experiences of Mennonites, um, who are often kind of approached in isolation from surrounding groups, and really bring them into dialogue with other migrants that also arrived in that region. So again, if you know Santa Cruz, you'll perhaps know that Hundreds of thousands of Andeans, um, largely Indigenous, quechua aymara people from the Andes, migrated down to that region at the same time in the 1950s and 60s to become farmers in the tropics and semi-tropics, and they kind of settled right alongside. And so I was simultaneously conducting interviews and doing research on that community to see how they compared with Mennonites' experiences um, in this new environment. and. Another significant group of Japanese and Okinawan settlers also arrived at the same time. A lot of the Okinawans were displaced by the U.S. military, which was building bases on the Okinawan islands after World War II, and they were resettled by the military in Santa Cruz. Um, and again, so my, you know, the languages involved in that project would have perhaps been kechua um Japanese and Okinawan dialects, yeah. and <laughs> yeah, so Spanish more. formed a common denominator for all of <laughs> those groups, um, making it something a bit more manageable.
0: Yeah, it seems interesting. Yeah, I mean, from from Peru and from other parts of Latin America, there is a concept of of Santa Cruz because the the general concept of, of Bolivia as as a general is is a country with with the dark-skinned people, probably the most dark-skinned people, the most indigenous among South America, at least. But when people think of Santa Cruz, a lot of times people think about more light-skinned people, either, either white, um, European, more recent immigrants or, or more light-skinned mestizos. And and it's a very curious uh, place of thing because it's... It's still in, in in like in the popular imagination, of Latin America, Santa Cruz, like that, and and and, and what do, is your thought about about this, about this conception of Santa Cruz?
1: Yeah, no, that's a that's a fascinating aspect. And I think studying the experiences of those three groups I mentioned, you know, andeans from within the country, Okinawans and Mennonites. Um, as that city evolved, really kind of drives home those, those different ideas of race, right? Um, we know, for instance, that Santa Cruz you know, was a small town of 40,000 people in the 1950s when the first settlers um, began to arrive in that region. Today, you know, I think about 1.5 million or more around the city, and uh, it's listed as the fastest-growing city in the Americas after Toluca um so it really has expanded quite rapidly and what's happened as you point out is that there's been kind of a paradox with all that migration from the highlands to the lowlands you have a real strong you know, i guess you could call it a nativist response among the camba population as you as lowlanders would describe themselves or cruxenos um, defining themselves in opposition to highland society to highland bolivia you know kind of came to a head with the autonomy movements of the early 2000s 2006 through eight. In that process, it's interesting to see how Mennonites have figured in that region. So, as some elements, of course, not all of the Santa Cruz population, have have kind of rejected Andean migrants or cast them as outsiders, even though they have migrated within their own country. A lot have really come to embrace Mennonites as sort of our colonists and and local producers, Um, and that certainly speaks to that different racial ideology, right, in that region that identifies itself as whiter, and also so to, to an extent in, in the, the ways in ways which Mennonites were able to, sort of, through their agricultural production, um, present themselves as model farmers. Um, you know, so they're producing, for a long time, it was the majority, still close to the majority of, um, or at least about 50% of the soybeans in the region, so a key export crop for Santa Cruz. Um, they're also producing the majority of the milk um, in the region as well. And so there's a mixture there between uh, racial and ethnic identities, economic production, um, and Mennonites have historically always been very careful about how they have been perceived and the relationships they've cultivated within host societies, you know, aware that they're kind of benefiting from these very conspicuous privileges that could lead them at some point to be cast as outsiders. So if they have largely been per- successful in doing that, which for me represents a huge, a huge irony, perhaps, in the nature of development in Bolivia, you know that nationals have been conceived of as foreigners, while well, Mennonites have kind of been able to do that, as have Okinawans and Japanese, who form some of the largest, the two largest really agro-industrial cooperatives in the lowlands.
0: Yeah, it's it's really interesting, and I think it, it speaks about the complex racial relationships and belief in general. But mm-hmm. uh, the, the other issue I wanted to, to ask you was, um, how do, I mean, the particularly the, the, the most, uh, for saying in some terms, the most liberal of these communities have people that are trying to integrate in mainstream society. I was thinking about a, a case of, I was watching the Bolivian TV the other day, and a, a case of, a, of a, of a Mennonite woman who has become a model and goes to the TV and is interviewed. So so this is something that some years ago I wouldn't have like like think about about this as a possibility, like Mennonites mm-hmm. going to the press and, and, and because for a lot of, of and there was a, 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 a relatively known rape case that, that generated a lot of prejudice toward the yeah. and. And some, some some years ago, and, and so how the Mennonites are are are, are now uh, dealing with with their relationship with the community because these times their image is changing. I mean, because of the media, because of of of, of, of the of of the technology now, like there there is more ways to 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 tackle their the, the presence. And I, I guess that from the media there are, uh, it's, it's very like like uh, presented as some form of surrealism that in the middle of Latin America, there is a, there is a, a Germanic speaking people uh, in, in a very sunny place. It's not, not sound something very common, but, but there is certain fascination also, not only by the media in Bolivia, but with the, the more broadly Western media.
1: Mm-hmm. Certainly, yeah, I think, you know, there's a few things to touch on there. And, and uh, on the one hand, there's kind of always been that that sort of cursory interest, right, you know, coming and going. Uh, there's sort of a sort of realization that there is, as you pointed out, this curious population um, living in this region, which doesn't seem to fit our expectations. Um, and there's really, if you look back, um, you know, some of the sources that i drove from there's there's been a steady stream of visitors into these colonies over the years um but as i said often often kind of temporary right that people you know you, you read articles from the mexican press in the you know the 1930s you know the decade after mennonites arrived and in the following decades and occasionally you'll find articles reflecting on this, this curious people in a strange land as look past cast them or a community trapped in time um, so there is that long history of, of visitors coming in and reflecting on mennonites um, in the region sort of as outsiders, um, and, and those communities, as I pointed out, often have people within them. Um, sometimes it is the forester or sort of the colony mayor who's sort of responsible for managing the public relations of the community. Sometimes it's, it's individuals within the colony who often have a lot of contacts, commercial or economic, because of course that is quite extensive with, um, with say, the Bolivian population, and, and they often kind of manage also that image of Mennonites in the region. Um, so there, there is that element. I think another way to think, think about, about the future of the Bolivian Mennonite population might be to look again at other Latin American countries with large Mennonite populations. And so in neighboring Paraguay, um, where Mennonites were settled in the 1920s, um, you know, in the Chaco, right before the Chaco War, basically, um, there are large, large colonies in the Chaco now that have become major producers. I think they produce. Um, between them and the, and the Mennonites in eastern Paraguay produce about 7 or 8% of the GDP of Paraguay, um, you know, even though they represent only about 45 or 50,000 people. And, and you'll find Mennonites participating in politics, which was certainly something they weren't expected to do before, prohibited from doing. You'll find you know, Mennonite race car drivers racing in the ruta that Chaco, the and you will sort of race through the region, um, and kind of people taking up a broader spectrum of activities within, within mainstream society. So I I would be curious to see, it's fascinating to kind of hear the story of the the Mennonite beauty queen, you know, because that is also another sort of image we associate with Santa Cruz, um, sort of beauty queen industry. It'd be interesting to see how this proceeds going forward. Um,
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you other thing, the the issue about the the homogeneity of the community. If I am not wrong, people can convert in Mennonites. um, and relationships with the Psy community are sometimes faced with harsh, uh, sentence for saying in some way. Uh, I remember once watching, uh, a young Mennonite who, who fall in love with a, with a, with an indigenous woman. And, and he said that, that their family expelled him and, and he was on the TV asking for someone if he'll help him and give him a job because her, her no wife was pregnant and he needed to to, to provide it to her new family so um so how this this things it's very complex and and it's very particular of, of the Mennonite this this kind of 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 uh, separation for society and in a very radical way
1: yeah it, it always kind of touches on that sort of you know that paradox because they were often welcomed in to these countries as sort of presumably as modernizers and model farmers, but of course (laughs) adopt a community structure which sort of separates them in many ways from from sort of integrating in society. Um, So in a sense, you'll find people that that is still the the aim, right, of of Mennonite presence in Latin America is to maintain the degree of that separation. Even if, of course, economically speaking, Mennonites are completely integrated in national and global economies through their production. Um, But you you will see other people that are kind of pushing the boundaries, either in in modernizing colonies um, or just individuals that that, that at times do leave the colony as well. Um, So yeah, I I also encountered people doing my field work who kind of found themselves on the edges or the margins of the colony, um, you know, because they intermarried in Bolivian society. Um, For some of them, this involves, you know, leaving the colony altogether. Um, There's a man that operates uh, an organization called Menno Travel in in Santa Cruz. Uh, and uh, I think Gerhard Fair, I believe, is his name. But um, he, he decided he wanted to go to university and kind of was also kind of forced to leave the colony as a result. But but ended up creating a career in which he helps facilitate the travel of a more, much more conservative Mennonites throughout the, the Americas as they want to visit family that are up in Mexico or Canada. So he has a small travel agency there. And yeah, I think that's a very difficult decision for a lot of Mennonites to engage in. Particularly because there's such an economic advantage to taking part in that community life, um, you do certainly have quite a large degree of poverty within a Mennonite colony in Latin America. But because there are certain social systems um, that support the poor within the community, there's always a, a base level, and then you know your, your sort of average or middle class farmer within that colony does typically live at a level substantially above. The income um, of neighboring Bolivians in Santa Cruz, or other other farmers in the region. So there's certainly there's a lot of benefits to, to taking part in that life, as restrictive as it may seem, um, certainly to some uh, to us outsiders.
0: Well, I mean, it's it's really an interesting topic that that you have been studying, and and I think it's 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 really timely because uh, Latin American hasn't been considered necessarily as as a main Immigration destination, but in the last times is 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 changing. There is a lot of immigration between the countries. I mean, the the crisis, the political crisis in in, in Venezuela is is generating a lot of immigration uh, toward neighboring countries. Uh, also, there are a lot of Asians, Asians people from eighty uh, moving to to Chile. There are also uh, uh, start uh, a really interesting trend of Africans moving to Argentina. So um, how do you see the, the, the possibility of, of this kind of a study? Uh, because I, I think it's many of, of this, uh, these countries, uh, there have not been a tradition of studying immigration. And, uh, and I guess in, in some ways the, the academia in, in, in the U.S. is probably more adapted to that kind of research. Mhm.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um I do I do really think as you point out it's particularly in those countries that Mennonites have settled in um you know Mexico, Bolivia, Paraguay. Those were the, the countries that didn't receive large waves of migration even in the sort of heyday of Latin American immigration, you know, in the 19th century when when Argentina and Brazil did receive significant populations. So these are countries that don't really have that um you know, historical tradition or, or sort of national tradition of, of thinking about themselves as countries of, of immigration. And that, that that's one reason I think the Mennonite case is kind of fascinating there, right? Just is how, is Bo- how does Bolivia conceive of this immigrant population? Um, you know, how do, how do they fit into the sort of national ideology of Mexico as well, a country that really had very, very low levels of immigration through its entire independent um, existence? Um, so that, that's, that's a key point. You know, I think the other really interesting thing about studying Mennonites, and there's always a danger of treating them as, treating them in isolation and forgetting how they fit into broader pictures. And so for me, the Mennonite presence in Latin America has also been a great vantage for exploring these, these national moments. Um, you know, based on where Mennonites settled and when they arrived, um, it's a really sort of rich area for study. So, you know, they came into Mexico in the 1920s. On the heels of a decade of a violent revolution, and you know, settled in Chihuahua, one of the most violent revolutionary states, and purchased expropriated hacienda land that might have been redistributed elsewhere, so they kind of really found themselves, in you know, in the aftermath of the revolution, kind of trying to find their place as outsiders um, in what is often been termed kind of a you know a xenophobic sort of revolution, a, a hostile presence there. You, know, you saw. You saw a very hostile response to, to the Chinese in northern Mexico who were expelled you know, in the very decades when Mennonites were arriving in. So I found that kind of interesting in a similar sense. you know, Arriving just a few years before the Chaco War um, between Paraguay and Bolivia, Mennonites kind of found themselves at the center of that conflict too. Um, so working with colony records, you, you get a very intimate portrait of what was going on during the war years um, from their vantage point. Uh, similarly, in Bolivia with the 52 revolution and it's kind of arrived, you know, in the decades after that and sort of engage with its legacy. So that, that's an important think, contribution of the study as well, is to think about them as very much engaged with these national currents, um, even if they exist within a very local community and one that also has this diasporic population you know, of Mennonite communities around the Americas.
0: Well, it's been a, a really interesting talk and... Um, Where uh, could people find more of your work? Are you thinking in publishing something in the form of a a book or something like that?
1: Yeah, so there's actually a book in progress right now, um, tentatively titled Landscape of Migration, and it explores the the sort of transnational currents that brought Mennonites and Okinawans and Andeans down to Santa Cruz um, from 1952 onwards um, to the present. So that's. We're doing revisions on that right now, but if someone wants to find something immediately, they can look um, either in the, the edition of the Journal of Latin American Studies, which just came out the other day, um, and you'll find an article called Reshaping the Chaco, um, that's, uh, that's when I wrote about the history of Mennonites in the Chaco war years, um, arriving actually from Russia in 1930, um, and kind of finding themselves in the midst of this conflict. Um, finding themselves also next to indigenous populations in the Chaco, trying to kind of make sense of their new place in that order. And then um, Agricultural History um, also has an edition that came out um, earlier this year, and I have a co-authored piece there with uh, another scholar of Mennonites um, in the Americas, Royden Lowen, and it explores the meaning of the use of the steel wheel among Mennonite communities. in the region and how that changed as Mennonites migrated from Canada to Mexico to Bolivia. Um, so it was enjoyable to work together with him because he's a Canadian historian on that project. Um, those would be the two best ones, egg History and Journal of Latin American Studies.
0: Well, I think with, with that we could leave it here. Thanks, Benjamin.
1: Okay, thank you so much.